With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Film Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, IndieWire's Editor-at-Large out in Los Angeles. And I have to say, Ann, one of the things that I really appreciate about this podcast is that even though sometimes we're consumed by these big conversations, whether it's award season or a film festival, sometimes it's nice to just sit back and look at a movie that's actually opening in theaters that people who don't have the luxury of seeing things in these rarefied environments can actually see for themselves. So I want to start off by focusing on one of those that's coming out. And even though we saw it at a film festival a little while ago, or at least I did, uh, it, it is opening wide. I actually wide. saw it last night. It's <laughs> out last night. So still ahead of the release date, but just a few days beforehand. And that's Keanu, which is a comedy that I think was born as almost like a viral joke when the trailer came out and people saw that, you know, that this idea of Key and Peel going through this Pineapple Express type of odyssey to, to get back their stolen kitten. You know, the trailer kind of tells you everything you need to know. And it was amazing to see how that kind of took off. And then I went to the South by Southwest uh, sneak screening, which they build as a work in progress for, I would have to assume, you know, reasons that, that are, have less to do with the movie, whether the movie not, is finished and more about, you know, not calling it the world premiere or whatever. But what I got out of this movie was that the trailer told you pretty much everything you needed to know in the sense that there, there's this running joke that stupid cat videos on the internet kind of define the paradigm of, of you know, popular culture right now. And this movie exploits that to such an extreme degree that I think the trailer basically is the movie. I wanted something more from it. I wanted it to be as funny as I know Key and Peele can be, and I felt like it, it reached for that only so far. And so it was thin. I agree that it was thin, but I actually got a big kick out of it, and I have a, a funny feeling that it, it'll do well because because... because <laughs> The concept is that you have two black guys who are really, uh, you know, kind of white guys <laughs> and, and, and that they are going down under in the culture, um, you know, playing gangsters cause in, in pursuit of the cat and that this, the, the guy uh, <laughs> and, and, and Peel is, is like, you know, the really, really you sort of a namby-pamby nerd kind of guy, but when it comes, you know, he stands up to the gangster when it's time for him to fight for his kitty. And, and, and that's the concept. And I just got a kick out of watching them maneuver, posture, uh, you know, change their language, you know, hang with the other guys, gain masculinity from hanging with the other guys. And, and the whole scene where Key is like... <laughs> You know, when they're going through the the George Michael of it all with with all the guys, I have to say I'm more entertained by your entertainment value that you extracted from this movie than the actual movie itself because it's like, yeah, I mean it it does it, it's so ridiculous that 
the more you talk about it, the funnier it seems. I just wanted to relax and not, you know, think about anything. It's a popcorn movie and everyone around me was laughing and we were just having fun. And I didn't have any expectations at all. It was better than I was expecting. And yes, it's the trailer. You, you know everything from the trailer. You're right. But it was a perfectly pleasant uh, thing, and that 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 idea, you know, that that you know, he comes to the, the, they gain their masculinity, they prove themselves, and then he can go stop his wife. You know, was pretty funny, and and uh, I, I got a kick out of it. Well, the other thing to think about here is, I mean, so what you're singling out is the the the, the big racial joke of the movie, which is established in the trailer that they they're they're kind of white-ish guys playing blackish guys is continues throughout the movie in certain ways where they're allowed to hit certain punchlines so the George Michaels thing is probably the biggest one and the, and that it, was it works really when he takes he, he gets high and he's right. dancing to that that was hilarious to but, me but what I, but what I think it and and I don't want. I'm playing devil's advocate to some degree because I I like these guys and what they do. I also I think that subversive black comedy about what it means to be black in America is something that has been underexploited and underappreciated in American movies. So I want these guys to succeed. I mean, you look at what Chappelle's show was. That was that show was becoming an, a national phenomenon in a way where if, if he had stuck around and kept doing that show. Its impact on the way that we talk about race in this country would have continued to reverberate in these really dramatic ways. I look at something like what the Wayans brothers were doing, you know, now 20 years ago with Don't Be a Menace or something like that. You know, with these movies that were, were really like savage takes on race in America. It's amazing to me that those reverberations weren't there at that time. And I think maybe that has more to do with the way race in this country was perceived and talked about back then versus now. Well, this now. is going to play young, obviously. And I think I think the millennials and, and younger have so many less issues with race than older people do. Right. It's like they're breaking but, down those barriers in a way through comedy that, that, that allows us to talk about it by laughing about it. But this is hardly, you know, this is hardly risque or, or, or groundbreaking in any way. What it is is just funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and, and they wrote it, so, you know, they, they, they've got some potential in that respect. I mean, I think they're now working on a horror movie. They're cutting off in some different oh, directions. Oh, I think they're going to do great, very well in movies. I think you basically are witnessing, you know, the new comedy duo, and they're going to have a whole long series of, of movies, and they're going to do, you know, they're going to get smarter and better and, and, and riskier, I'm sure, and as it, they go forward. I guess there is a question around that as well, which is sort of how, how much do studios really need these comedies to work Versus just you know putting Melissa McCarthy in there, for example, and and just letting people laugh at the kind of crassest jokes they can throw in there. I mean, something like The Boss could have been such a better movie, but it made good money, so it didn't have to be. And so it makes you wonder if there's any real pre- pressing need on the commercial end of things to make these movies good. No, 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 no. I mean, well, all right. There's that. You're asking a lot of different questions there because on the one hand, Melissa McCarthy is a huge movie star, no pun intended, and she's incredibly uh, strong at the box office and, you know, making a dumb movie, uh, you know, doesn't hurt her. Uh, but on the other hand, I prefer her in a Paul Feig movie or a Paul Feig movie, if that's how you pronounce his name, because I think it is, um, then, it, you know, in one directed by her husband. So, you know, if, if she wants me to go, she's going to make a smart 
comedy. If she wants everybody else in America to go, she's going to make a dumb comedy. It's just a question of, uh, of, of, of who your target audience is. But if you look at some of the other big comedies that were released, released this year, it's not a genre that's doing super well. I mean, right along to Zoolander 2, The Boss, and now Keanu. If, if Keanu is the best of that bunch... I mean, I hope that we have something to expect on the on on that scale that that might offer something different. Ghostbusters is still an open question, despite a lot of people expecting it to be bad because they just don't like having their nostalgia messed with in that respect. That's a but, question of looking at the trailer and sort of saying, "Hmm, you know, we wonder how good this is going to be." You know, we we have to we have to see. We have just to see. The, the trailer idea. didn't give it to me. Yeah, I mean, but the Kate McKinnon is amazing, and I, we I have want hope for Kate McKinnon. Yeah, she's she's yeah. got to do something great. I mean, I, I have to say, my big fat Greek wedding too wasn't as bad as a lot of people tried to say it was. I liked the and, first one. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a repetition of that to some degree, but there there, there are some things lurking in, in the sidelines. I would say that probably my favorite comedy of the year so far is actually Everybody Wants Them. Which is a kind of fun, playful Rick Linkletter movie, but it's it's hilarious. Not doing well at the box office, though. So. Yeah, well, so that's the reality of our world. Speaking of, of box office in the indie space, though, another interesting story that, that we published on the site this week had to do with the top indie films so far this year. And it's a really uh, startling top two because they're very different kinds of movies. Number one being I Am the Sky. This, no, this, number uh, one is The Witch, which number is one a is wide witch, release movie. With, with I Am the Sky, and then number I Am the Sky is the top specialty release right, movie. Right. In other words, it's a limited release movie. But we should we should sort of define a little bit what that means because I Am the Sky is a movie that that. Uh, you know, came out without distribution at the Toronto Film Festival last fall. It was picked up by Bleecker Street and released uh, in a certain kind of way that allows us to to call it that. Right. Exactly. Whereas The Witch was released by A24 and 2000 theaters all at once. So it can claim top indie, uh, you know, in our IndieWire top 20 chart, whereas Eye in the Sky can claim top it's, specialty it's, movie it's of 2016, right. if you so, like. It's about 15, it's heading for 20, and uh, The Witch is at around 25, and it's a horror film, it's a genre film. Which, which is really actually, I think, startling because I Am the Sky has has stars and technically broader appeal, right? I mean, it's a movie that is- it's a thriller. I mean, it's it's really, Gavin Hood. You know, it's really well made. It's really well edited, and it has it has major movie stars: Helen Mirren and and the late great Alan Rickman and Aaron Paul. Yeah, it's funny though. I actually thought it was almost like a comedy thriller in parts. I mean, it, it veers back and forth. There's this bureaucratic element to the way that the drone operations sort of function throughout the movie. That, that It's almost Doctor Strangelove-esque. It doesn't quite get that macabre, but it's. Uh, I, I really like the way it pulls back the veil. And so it's nice to see that that movie's doing so well right now at this early stage of the year in that respect. And, and I also think... It, it, it tells you something about these kinds of movies that they have more of a potential than maybe some distributors think. You know, the idea of a kind of a, a war movie or drone warfare not having commercial appeal. I can, I just, I'm sure there were some people who made that conclusion before they even saw it, right? Right. So Bleeker managed to get it, but the you know the, the Hurt Locker would be one pre- precedent for this, or or American Sniper for that matter, which is of course a big commercial success. Um, but it's entertaining. 
I think I think finally it has tension. It's it's got you know a range of characters. Uh, it's not just about Helen Mirren, uh, although she's the star that carries it. Um, I think I think uh, it, it it did a lot of things right, and it also was lucky. I mean, it was very well reviewed, obviously, but it was lucky that it it was perfectly timed, you know, to capture the market. And and a lot of the movies that were going against it weren't as strong, didn't do as well. And and that's how it emerged in a way. It had the best word of mouth in the end, and therefore rose to the top. And you have to give it to Bleecker Street, a young company that that seems to be really delivering. I mean, Captain Fantastic, a movie they had at out of uh, Sundance this year, is now the Sundance movie going to Cannes and is going to get a much bigger kind of exposure on that front. They seem to be Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, the, the Viggo Mortensen thing. It's like they're finding the movie stars. Who bring that older art house audience to the theaters? It's it's a very smart, methodical approach that you know speaks to the state of the theatrical marketplace today for these kinds of movies. It's funny. I was I I did an interview uh, with a French producer who's going to be at Cannes. whose name is uh, Charles Gilbert, who's going who produced Olivia Essayas's movie uh, that's going to be their personal shopper, as well as Mustang. Uh, which was in the Oscar race, uh, the Turkish-French co-production. Um, and he, he was saying that, that that's also true in France, you know, that the, and in France the theaters are very strong. They don't have the kinds of challenges that we're getting now from VOD. I mean, they're not as mature in that sense uh, in terms of that market. But uh, they are getting older, too. The audiences are, are definitely gray hairs. And, 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 and I was talking to Andrew Carpenter, the guy who uh, runs uh, Bleecker Street, about why, um, you know, the theatrical could possibly stay the same. In other words, you could have the younger people growing older and being the art house audience. (laughs) The question is whether that's going to happen. You know, are they going to turn into after they've had their children and and they've grown up and they have time and leisure time? It's about that, too. That's why older people go, because they have time. And it's a question of of whether that habit is ever going to come to the generation that doesn't go to the movies now as often as we did. But then on the other hand, you have something like The Witch, which is totally a young demo play, right? Totally. That's a movie where it's like, it's, it's, it's cool, it's hip, it's scary, it's not about the stars, it's about let's go have that fun horror movie experience. And, and it's smart horror movie. Yeah. And it's unexpected horror movie because it's got this beautiful period kind of ambience, you know, beautifully art directed and very elegantly shot, you know, very aesthetically pleasing while you're being scared to death. Yeah, it was funny because the cinema score of that first weekend was like C or C minus. That's because it's marketed uh, to, to the broader audience. Right, that's and they're like, that's not time. a horror movie. But at the same time, word of mouth must have started to sink in with time. Well, they found the right audience, which is more of the the smart art house demo, even if they did go wide. I just love that contrast that you have on the one hand, the kind of the, the older art house and then the kind of edgy genre stuff. And that collectively tells you that there is some kind of future for the theatrical experience. So it's like, what movie do you want to leave the house to see? Make an evening of it. And Keanu. I mean, I would argue that that's a comedy and comedies always play better. In a theater with a group of people. A holy trinity right there of sorts. It's actually quite fascinating. Exactly. No, there's going to be a future. Um, I was talking to um, 
James Seamus today because we were talking about uh, Chinese movies being uh, the, the whole China market and the impact that it's having on everything. It's it's it, that fascinates me. Uh, the the idea that so many of our theaters, you know, are are Wanda is a big investor in in movie theaters and. Um, a lot of companies are invested in in other companies like Legendary, and and there's a lot of money in studio movies now, and it's going to be the biggest market in the world. They're going to overtake us eventually. America's been the biggest. North America's been the biggest market for for eons in our world. Um, but it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that changes uh, things. And uh, we were talking about that. I mean, I started to get worried about this stuff when the last half hour of Transformers 5 or 4 or whatever the hell it was took place in Beijing for no apparent reason. It was just like, (laughs) all right, now we're just going to move the CGI over here and just do some stuff in China. But I also think that this is a good thing in the sense that if 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 the power dynamics shift to the east, then I think on some level it may allow certain other kinds of movies to stand out on the North American front that otherwise might seem like they're being overshadowed by the the big kind of Hollywood temples of sorts. So well, maybe what's there's... weird about a lot of the movies that are being aimed at the overseas market is that they do, you know, they can do seventy percent of their business. I was struck by the fact that I think it was. Um, uh, the, the most recent Kung Fu Panda movie. Uh, we were doing a story about Jeffrey Katzenberg and Comcast buying DreamWorks Animation, and seventy percent of that movie's business was overseas. You know, and if that's the norm, I mean, so many movies are aimed at the overseas audience, and then they don't do that much business in America. And that's one of the reasons we have this impression of so many disappointing movies that aren't that interesting to us. And there's a, there's a reason for it. They're not made for us. So the other thing that's going on outside of all this stuff, and yet it's still the elephant in the room, is that a lot of people don't care about the future of the theatrical marketplace because they're already streaming stuff. We're all streaming stuff. We know how to do this stuff. There's a convenience element, and the marketplace is starting to reflect that in a lot of fascinating ways. It's not that this is something new, that Netflix or Hulu or whatever, we haven't been talking about them. Of course, those things are are sort of, they've found their footing. But what we're also seeing is that there are other tiers to the streaming marketplace, and almost like a a, a narrow casting approach that's coming together that I think is is very progressive in terms of allowing uh, a a more complex set of film-going possibilities to migrate into that marketplace. So this week, we heard about the Criterion Collection and Turner Classics Movies are partnering on this new deal called Filmstruck, which is going to allow for a big streaming library of all these Criterion titles and just a terrific way to allow people to to say, yes, I want to plug into these people and and their branding and through a subscription service. But what it's going to do is it's going to take Criterion off of Hulu Plus, so Hulu Plus subscribers are not the people who get to benefit from that, and instead it's going to say, if you like this sensibility, then this is the thing you need to subscribe to, which to me sounds pretty smart because it's going to grow. Well, it's a a sign of strength, I think, and it's a sign of those two entities merging their, their very 
very similar audience demographic, which again is older and is more oriented toward classic titles and, uh, you know, quality, quality art, classic cinema. But there's so, so much breadth and so much depth to that, that they can use their two platforms very effectively to bring in that audience and keep the revenue and not have to share it with uh, these other uh, distribution entities. It's going to be more, you know, they're going to have to get into the marketing of it more. And, and, but they, they know who their customers are and they know how to reach them. It's just such an extraordinarily powerful brand. I mean, I've, I've I talked to, to random people at, at, at parties who don't even necessarily identify as cinephiles, but somehow they, they're just obsessed with Criterion. And that idea, I think, is incredibly powerful right now, just that you can commit to a brand and trust that brand, and that brand can, can teach you about whatever it is that you want to learn about. And I think that's going to be really valuable, because a lot of times people wonder, you know, does film have, have a future? You have to remember that film has had a past that can also inform its future in the sense that we can keep watching these movies. There are new generations who haven't seen these movies. And the idea... Well, there's, a whole, there's a whole group of people showing up in L.A. today to start with the TCM Classic Movie Festival that's going on. You know, we're, I'm going to go to the opening tonight with all the President's Men and, and all that and a big party. And, and, and they pay a fortune, yeah. a fortune to go to this festival. And a lot of young and, people, and too. And get to see all of these old movie stuff. I was last year. It was Maureen O'Hara who was there. It was great. Or two years ago. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about how you you've been, you just spoke to Anna Karina and and for this. I'm uh, going to talk to her on Saturday. You're talking to her this weekend. So I mean, because the, there's this you know uh, band apart is being re-released and uh, just uh, the idea of some kind of continuity to this film history that the people who are still around are still available, you can still talk about them. That that That's a pretty incredible thing to recognize as well, which is that the, as these movies grow and the people grow up with them, you can talk about them in new ways. So they take on new a new identity with time. And part of and, and that part of it, I think, is, is going to be really valuable for these kinds of services that are bringing these movies to more people. And you think about how... 20% of silent films survive, right? And just every day we hear about some new restoration of this or that or the other thing. And it, that seems like it's just going to keep propelling the the future of film scholarship in, you know, in a really dramatic way, but also just the, the way in which the marketplace allows for movies to be seen. But it's also TCM is taking a lot, of, and, and Criterion too, or they're, they're taking a lot of these movies out into the theaters and, and reaching that gray-haired audience <laughs> that wants to. Some of them are younger. I mean, when they take a, a Grease or, or, or something more current, which Grease is pretty old, but it's relatively current compared to some of the titles oh, sure. that were coming you know, came out in something like Maltese Falcon, which came out in the 40s, seems relatively old compared to Greece. But I also think about movies like Killer of Sheep, which uh, I'll be talking about with my NYU students this week, a movie that uh, very few people who saw even when it first came out. It was just not well protected. Charles a, Burnett. Yeah, a guy who's been burned by all kinds of different power players, and, and so there, there are reasons why this movie didn't see the light of day. In some ways, it's actually benefiting from all of that now because it's being held to an even higher esteem. It's, 
because it's more available. It's just been sort of rescued. And that, that rescuing process is something that I think is also very much a part of the future of the theatrical marketplace. If you think about the independent theaters, you know, I, I went to Metrograph, our, our, our fancy new downtown spot last weekend, and it's insane to see the crowd. They had a restoration of this film called Los Sures, which is about Williamsburg in the early 80s pre-gentrification. It was totally sold out. And they had, that was after it had been there for a week, too. And I didn't see people I knew there. It wasn't an insidery thing. It was people who were sort of, they read about it, it sounded cool, they wanted to get that experience, and that's where you had to go to get that experience. That, to me, seems like maybe one of the most promising things that movies as an art form have going for them. Just so we can As a community, them. too. Yeah. As, you know, the whole concept of being part of a, of a community. And, and, and I, I, I don't think that's going to go away. I think it will be fine. So let's circle back to the studio front, because one other story we didn't talk about this week involves a, a pretty big studio, DreamWorks, which got this big deal. Comcast picked it up for $3.8 billion, billion. So what on earth does this mean? For well, framework. it means that Katzenberg finally got $41 a share instead of the 35 that he was trying to get two years ago in 2014, where he, he, he went up to, you know, he was going to do a deal with Hasbro, or he was going to do, you know, this, South, uh, this, this Japanese company, SouthBank, and he was going to do uh, maybe Fox or maybe Paramount. None of those came through. And finally, when I was reading, you know, why this was good synergy, you know, I just believed it would happen. Because it's so perfect. Illumination, when I was in Las Vegas with CinemaCon, it was just so obvious to me that Universal was like really high on and banking on this animation uh, division led by Chris Miladandri, who comes from Fox and used to work with Blue Sky over there and with Ice Age and movies like that. This guy's really good. He started out first out of the block. It was, it was, you know, Despicable Me. And, you know, Minions is huge and 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 the sequel to Despicable Me was huge. So this is a really strong animation company, but you can also go to the theme parks, you can go to the licensing and merchandising, you can, you know, there's television properties that Katzenberg acquired and, and turned DreamWorks into him. He was very sharp. He wanted to get this done. And he, you know, he he bought these these all these classic, you know, cartoon characters. He owns Felix the Cat. He 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 went into a big deal where they were supplying animation to Netflix. You know, because Netflix has a big sort of children's programming area, and they made it a bigger television play. And so all of these things worked out in such a way. Plus, they had some hits this year. They had Home, and they had. Um, the uh, they have trolls coming up, and uh, you know the uh, dragon sequel did well, and and Kung Fu Panda. So they're they're in good shape, and they were able to make this deal and get the money that they wanted. And now, the the uh, the other thing to think about too is just that DreamWorks SKG back in 1994 Spielberg Katzenberg. And Geffen, um, you know, the, 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 the imaginary studio that they were going to create somehow never really happened, you know. And eventually Geffen got out, and eventually they moved from studio to studio. Well, they're busy guys, Spielberg right? is back at Universal making, you know, Amblin movies. He's basically. making movies, yeah. I mean, it's just uh, all of these guys seem like they have a lot they want to do at once, too. I mean, it's just... Uh... 
it's not like this one idea was was everything they had going for them, even when they started it. So. Well, Katzenberg has been pretty slavishly devoted to making DreamWorks animation. I mean, it was hard for him because every single time he went he went public, and every single time the the a movie would open, it would be uh, you know a do or die in a situation with the opening weekend. And you know he's he this is a great great final chapter for him. You know, and he can be the billionaire now that he always wanted to be. You know, he was always the sort of you know the younger guy wasn't as rich as the other guys. <laughs> well, I hope he has the best yacht party at Cannes this year, then. Yes, he's going to be there with trolls, and I'm going to talk to him, so I'm very curious to hear what he... <laughs> he must be so relieved. I cannot imagine the pressure. I mean, he had to sell the Glen- Glendale studio. He had to lay off 500 people. He brought in Bonnie Arnold. I mean, he did everything that he had to do to make it work, and it worked. Yeah. Well, sometimes there are happy endings to these crazy CEO stories. We can't. It's, it's not. It's not. It doesn't all have to go the way of whatever happened with Disney a few weeks back. You know. It's, uh, but but at the same time, the DreamWorks thing that they were going to achieve that 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 mad, that, that that extraordinary thing that they thought they were going to do that that didn't really happen. Right. It's a it's a it's a production company, and and that and now animation is being folded into into Universal's animation to Illumination, and that's and that's it. So the trolls are just going to be running all up and down the quadset this year. <laughs> they always do. I these should say that things. that trailer looked great to me. <laughs> I think it's going to be superb. You never know. So it's, be- it's it's a musical. You've got you've got Anna Kendrick and and. Uh, Justin Timberlake singing. It, it's it's it looked like fun to me. Yeah, you're really selling it to me hard, and <laughs> <laughs> I can't I wait like for musicals. that. Uh, I can't wait for for that uh, Olivia Assayas movie. I can you mentioned earlier, but you know you're not going to win me over with uh, Justin Timberlake quite yet. One Kirsten, step at a time. Kristen Stewart. Kristen yeah, Stewart. Stewart. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of Can, uh, next week will be our last episode we'll record before we actually take that big plunge. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we have to do before then. But I have to say, I mean, it, it's been nice to enjoy this sort of, you know, transitional period as we got out, we got through Oscars, we got through a couple festivals, but we're about to take the big plunge into the biggest craziest film experience of the year so I'll let you get back to it because I know I've got a lot of work to do and I can only imagine what's on your plate but let's just uh, reassess next week because we've got a lot to dig through see you then Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.